0: Well, welcome to the first meeting of the Aristotelian Society for 2012. Um, we pick up rather where we left off at just before Christmas. Um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Seth Yalson, who um, has come all the way from Berkeley, where he's an assistant professor. Um, he did his graduate work at MIT and has formerly held a position at NYU. Um, his interests are in the philosophy of language, um, philosophy of logic, semantics, and metaphysics. And his main work has been on probability operators and epistemic models. And today he's going to talk to us about Bayesian expressivism. Thank you. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll start with some good news. Uh, I won't really talk about anything on the handout. Um, so there's this technical handout, uh, this appendix that... I just made available in case some wanted more detail about some things I'll be saying and in case it comes up in the question session, but <clears throat> I've tried to keep the talk as, as non-technical as possible. Um, uh, it does start with these two technical terms, Bayesian and expressivism, so uh, it might not even be clear what this talk is going to be about, right? Is it an epistemology or metaethics or what? So let me just say what the talk will be about. It'll be about... The general direction of the, the sort of question I'm concerned with is the question how to model linguistic meaning and communication, and I want to broach this issue from the perspective of a broadly Bayesian representation of agents. So I want to consider this question from a Bayesian point of view. And my main aim in, in the talk is to show how to extend a traditional, relatively traditional picture of meaning and communication in a way that uh, enables it to mesh well with a Bayesian model of agents. So that's the main thing uh, I'm after. So let me say uh, uh, why there's something to do here. You know Why I think there's any need for a project like this. That's to say, why I why think there's any tension between a Bayesian model of agents and the received ways of thinking about meaning and communication. Um, So let me try to answer that question. Uh, The kind of tension I want to motivate is this. If you start with a Bayesian model of agents and you add uh, what I want to call the received picture of linguistic meaning communication, you end up with this peculiar communicative bottleneck. You end up with this weird... Uh, bottleneck in communication and uh, that's the kind of tension uh, we want to try to resolve uh, so let me let me say what I mean first let me just say what I mean by a Bayesian model of agents this hopefully is a familiar idea to uh, most of you um, first part of the idea uh, is a is a view about belief how to model belief so We start with the idea that belief comes in degrees. It isn't an all-or-nothing kind of thing. Belief states are representable as probability spaces. States of desire are states which induce preference orderings over outcomes, and they're representable uh, by way of utility functions, obeying certain axioms we don't have to worry about. And it adds the idea that agents act in ways that maximize expected utility relative to their degrees of beliefs and their utility. So, you know, fairly familiar conception of agents we see in economics, decision theory and so on. So, I'm interested in starting with that kind of picture of agents and I want to suggest you get you get into a kind of very simple problem if you have this conception of agents and you consider ordinary ways of thinking about communication, linguistic communication. And the problem arises before you even add the stuff about utilities or acting so as to maximize it, um, the problem arises even at this stage of a Bayesian kind of picture. Actually, I think it even arises at this stage. If if you're willing to just take the step of thinking that belief comes in degrees in some sense, I think you're going to face a certain kind of uh, problem, this kind of bottleneck problem I want to sketch. And the problem is simply that uh, on the received picture of linguistic meaning and communication, uh, well, that picture uh, that picture works most naturally with a view of belief as all or nothing. Of course, when I talk about received picture of linguistic meaning and communication, that's something of a fiction, right? There's no received picture of linguistic meaning and communication. Um, but some are more received than others. And the one that I- I'm discussing is going to be relatively familiar. It's certainly one that I've received. Uh, so. <clears throat> Uh, And on this picture, I think think this is going to seem actually quite familiar. Uh, Most natural way of reading the picture uh, takes as a background the idea that belief is binary. So on the received picture, the kind of thing one generally puts into play in making an assertion is a potential object of non-graded binary belief, a proposition. What the compositional semantics of the language is charged with doing on this kind of traditional picture is fundamentally determining propositions relative to contexts, um, objects of binary belief. Uh, The attitude of mutual presupposition, which reflects the common ground of a conversation on the received picture, the kind of the body of information that you aim to influence when you make an assertion that Uh, it's kind of the proximal rational aim of your assertion to change, you know, you're trying to make what you're asserting presupposed. Uh, That state of presupposition that forms the basis of what's mutually presupposed, the common ground that's assumed to be analogous to the state of non-graded binary belief. You know, you just presuppose something or you don't, there's no, there's no degrees to presupposition. So, this kind of picture of communication is fixated on the objects of credence and preference and it lacks explicit room for the structure of credence and preference per se. It's designed around coordination on propositional objects for attitudes and not for coordination on the probabilities or utilities to be assigned to those objects. And that's what makes for the bottleneck. So uh, when our, Bayesian agents want to coordinate not just on certain objects of credence or objects of preference, but also on how likely to regard something or how much to prefer it, Uh, they face a a challenge. All all their semantics allows them to do is to express propositions and add propositions to the common ground. They need to squeeze their decision-theoretically rich states into uh, this ungraded propositional medium for transmission, and that's the bottling. So let me say more about that. Um, I'll just illustrate with a really, really really simple example. So um, let me give a, a version of the, how a, re, a toy version of the received picture might go, and then we can see the contrast. So here are two speakers, Blaze and Thomas. Suppose Blaze doesn't know what to think about whether it's raining in Paris, and it matters for his plans, let's say. Uh, Thomas happens to believe it is raining in Paris and he knows that Blaise wants to know about the weather in Powell, So Everything's just right for uh, Thomas to communicate something he believes to Blaise. Um, you know, they're nearby, friendly, speak a common language. That's common knowledge between them. Other things are equal. Uh, so what happens? Well, let's just draw a simplistic picture we could have boxes over their heads that just sort of display the relevant beliefs for this communicative situation. You can just list the beliefs, the propositions believed here. Again, we're, we're pres- presuming a kind of full belief picture. Uh, uh, between Blaise and Thomas, there's this conversational common ground. This is what they're mutually presupposing. Again, it just you can think of it as a set of, of propositions. And then what happens? Well, Thomas says it's raining in Paris and... You know, thanks to the semantics of the sentence, together with standing pragmatic norms that are common knowledge between the two uh, uh, interlocutors, uh, it's understood that Thomas is proposing to change the common ground by adding a proposition to it. And, uh, absent some objection from Blaze, it gets added. So we can just add that to the common ground. And then assuming Blaze, you know, trusts Thomas and, you know, relevant background assumptions about um, uh, how Blaze regards Thomas are in place, Blaze will uh, arrive at the, the target belief, the thing that Thomas was hoping to get Blaze, uh, the kind of state of mind Thomas was aiming to get Blaze into, right? So that's a familiar kind of picture. So let's just switch to a Bayesian conception of belief now and just consider an analogous communicative situation. Suppose... Again Blaise doesn't know what to think about whether it's raining in Paris and it matters for his plans in case that's important for some reason. Now suppose Thomas just has high-ish credence in the proposition that it's raining in Paris. Uh, and now Thomas wants to import the relevant information his state of mind carries to Blaise. <clears throat> so uh, what's that picture? Well? Now we have a richer conception of belief, right? So instead of just a list of propositions, we have at least the structure of a a probability space. So we'll get propositions paired with their probabilities. Of course, you might think it's unreasonable to suppose Thomas has some precise belief, uh, precise credence in every proposition. That's fine. Nothing I'm saying really turns on assuming uh, something so strong. We can just say Thomas is in a state of belief that uh, determine some interval of probability. So it puts the proposition that it's raining in Paris on the high end of the probability scale. Say greater than 0.6, if you, if you like. Okay, suppose that's Thomas's belief state. and He wants to get Blaze into that state too. He wants to communicate. It takes himself to have some information. He wants to communicate it. Well, what can Thomas uh, uh, do to get Blaze into a state like that? Thomas effectively needs to find a way to pack his graded non-binary state of mind into a binary one. If you're holding fixed kind of received view of meaning and communication uh, that I've been uh, sketching, right? So again, if we're just assuming that the semantics relative to context only gets you propositions and the conversational common ground is really just representable as a set of propositions, then Thomas can't just take this property of his creedal state and put it in the common ground. He has to find some, find some way of squeezing that property into a proposition and putting, floating that proposition into the common ground. Um, So he's got to find a proposition uh, to add to the common ground he shares with Blaze such that when Thomas proposes to add it to the common ground, Blaze will get the idea that the thing to do, if Thomas is right, is to enter this certain gray Bayesian graded doxastic state of mind. So that's an indirect path. This is the kind of bottleneck I'm trying to press. He has to resort to this indirect path because on the received picture, while you can express the objects of credence directly, you can't just directly give voice to particular ways one apportions probabilities to those objects. You can't just, uh, there isn't any means by which you can just do this. You can't just take the property of of belief and put it into the the common ground. The common ground just doesn't have the structure, uh, to enable you to do that. Uh, so, um, all right, let me skip ahead. So, the standard framework is just not designed to accommodate the possibility of, this is just one way, simple way to put it, it's not designed to accommodate the possibility of expressing aspects of one's creedal state besides that state's propositional content. What you express is the content of your belief, the, the proposition. Uh, that forms the content of your belief on the received picture. Okay, so Thomas has to take some indirect route if he wants to get Pascal into this target state of mind, the state of mind he's in. So what proposition could he express to get that job done? You might think of various options. One that kind of obviously comes to mind, especially from a Bayesian perspective on um, probability, is a proposition like this. Blaise, uh, suppose Thomas just says, I'm pretty confident that it's raining in Paris. So now he's gone from talking about rain in Paris to talking about himself. Uh, but this is just another way of illustrating the basic bottleneck, right? I mean, um, what Thomas is expressing here isn't, at least directly, this creedal state he's in. He's expressing this other, other state, other aspect of his state. Um, maybe it's this. Um, the the aspect of his belief state that maps the proposition that he is pretty confident it's raining in Paris to something really high, right? When he says, I'm pretty confident it's raining in Paris, it looks like he's expressing the belief that he's pretty confident that it's raining in Paris, right? It's not, he's not expressing the aspect of his creedal state that just concerns rain in Paris. So if that's the proposition he expresses, then that's what's going to get added to the common ground. Nothing directly about rain in Paris, something about Thomas instead and that's the thing that Blaise is going to pick up on, assuming they're cooperative Blaise trusts Thomas and so forth and then Blaise has to do some kind of further reasoning uh, on uh, what he what else he believes to draw the conclusion that you know he should be in a state of belief that sends highish probability to the proposition that it's raining in Paris so that's the kind of bottleneck um, <clears throat> I'm worried about in this talk. Basically, the kind of picture you end up with is, is a really s- sort of strange one. To communicate with language, our Bayesian agents have adopted this practice that compels them to squeeze this richly structured state of mind they're in into this binary, ungraded propositional medium for transmission. And that's a logically possible practice. You know, It could have been that things turned out that way, but it's sort of s- certainly nothing inevitable about it. And surely a more direct practice might have been in place. So that's sort of one of the main points I'm hoping to to make uh, here. Uh, The simple point that the the story I just sketched isn't inevitable. Things could have been uh, different. Um, In particular, they could have been different like this. It could have been that there's something Thomas could have said. Let's just uh, ignore what it is for the moment. It could have been that Thomas and Blaise both spoke a language such that the semantics relative to context determined something like a constraint on a creedal state, property of probability spaces, right? And uh, Thomas could just say that sentence. It would determine this property. That property would get added to the common ground, where the common ground is now a richer thing. It's as rich as a state of belief, let's say. It has room for probabilistic structure, not just not just propositions. And then, just like, uh, just like the classical picture deals with propositions, we do the same thing. We tell the same kind of story with properties of credal states. So, uh, instead of taking this indirect path, talking about himself, Thomas can just express this property of his credal state, It gets added to the common ground. And if Blaze trusts Thomas, and so forth, that's what. Uh, uh, That's what Blaze's creedal state comes to uh, accept. That's the property it it comes to have. So this is perfectly logically possible, right? It doesn't seem like there's any reason why there couldn't be a a system of language that works in this way. Um, And so I want to suggest that it's not just that this is possible, it's, it's also actual, right? So this is, in fact... Uh, how at least some fragment of English and other natural languages work. Sometimes we do need to resort to a richer conception of the common ground and a richer conception of uh, what sentences can express and how they can change the common ground. Um, And the the kind of sentence I'll focus on for the most of the talk is just the sentence, it's probably raining. So I want to suggest just this kind of change to the common ground uh, we can make with a sentence like, it's probably raining. When you say it's probably raining, you're not talking about yourself. You're, you're expressing a property of your creedal state. You're saying something that determines a property of probability spaces. Uh, not a way the world might be or a proposition in the kind of conventional, traditional sense. So I'll, I'll try to give you some good reasons to, th- to want to enrich your representation of the common ground in this way and the conception of, uh, your conception of semantics. Um, but I mean, one obvious reason to want to do this is that if we do, then this weird Bayesian communicative bottleneck dissolves, uh, right? So that's supposed to be at least some initial motivation for wanting to go, uh, this direction or at least explore the the possibility. So this kind of view that I've just sketched, uh, I want to call Bayesian expressivism. I have focused by the way, just on the probabilities um, it's a further step to add um, it's a further step to add utilities as well to the common ground. I think that's a very interesting uh, option. I probably won't really be able to talk about it in the main in the main part of the, of the talk today uh, just because of time constraints but uh, maybe we can touch on it in, the, in the question session. Um, so I want to call this Bayesian Expressivism Why, why call this expressivism? Why, why bring in that baggage? Um, you know, uh, uh, what good does that get you? Why think it's anything like meta-ethical expressivism, the most familiar kind of expressivism? Well, um, one important way is that uh, it emphasizes, this kind of picture I'm sketching emphasizes a distinction between expressing a state of mind and saying that you're in the state of mind in a way that's analogous to the way Gibbard ex- uh, stresses the same distinction for his version of expressivism uh, in, the, in the 1990 book, what he called norm expressivism. So let me just say how, and this will give you a sense of why I, I, I want to call this a kind of expressivism. Um, so here's what Gibbard says in his 1990 book, um, Why is Out Feelings. He's just ex- explaining... He's trying to explain what it is to express one's acceptance of a system of norms. It's the idea he wants to use to explain normative talk. And he says, well, what is that? The contrast is the same here as it is with the expression of straightforwardly factual beliefs. Let Cleopatra say, Antony's fleet outnumbers the enemies. Uh, She thereby expresses her belief that Antony's fleet outnumbers the enemies. But she doesn't say that she has the belief. She's talking about the opposing fleets, not her beliefs. He continues, likewise, suppose she says it makes sense for Antony to give battle. So the it, make, it makes sense part is the thing Gibbert's trying to explain expressivistically. It's a sort of talk of what's rational, it's normative talk, it's meant to be non-factual on his view. So what he wants to say is here again, she, she expresses a state of mind, but she's not saying that she's in that state of mind. Specifically, Gibbert argues, she's expressing her acceptance her acceptance of a system of norms, not saying that she... Accepts it, not describing our state of mind. So um, that's the way Gibbard describes an aspect of his expressivist view. And the point I just want to make is we're saying just the same sort of thing. In fact, you can just kind of repeat the whole thing, just subbing out, putting in credence where Gibbard talks about norm acceptance. So what is it to express one's credence? Well, the contrast is the same as with the expression of straightforwardly factual beliefs. And you say the same thing about ordinary uh, probability operator free talk like Anthony's fleet outnumbers the enemy. That's not a to, – to say that is not to express, is to express your belief about the fleet but not about your own beliefs. And likewise, to, to say Anthony's feet, fleet probably outnumbers the enemies. There again, you express a state of mind but you're not saying that you're in the state of mind. What you're doing is expressing your high credence and not saying that you're in a state of high credence. OK, so um, so that's just to warm up to the view, get a sense of um, the basic idea. So here's what I want to do in the time I have left. I want to try to state the view more precisely, give you my version of making this a little more um, uh, technically clear. I'll sketch some empirical motivations for the view, although that's not my emphasis in the talk. Um, Uh, I'll I'll try to say at least uh, a bit more about why the view isn't just possible but actual. And uh, I'll close by just making some points about how to understand the force content distinction in a Bayesian expressivist setting. I think some traditional distinctions uh, start to no longer apply in this kind of picture and you need to make some further distinctions there. So um, that'll be how I'll wrap it up. Okay, so but first making the view a little more clear, so, um, so I went through this whole spiel, uh, analogizing this to uh, what Gibbard says. Of course, you know this tells us what expressing high credence isn't, um, but is that enough to say what it what it is? Certainly, a lot of people found uh, or or find, um, you know, Gibbard's account of what it is to ex- express a, a state of norm acceptance a little wanting. Right? Is it enough? It is enough, obviously, not to just say what it isn't. So, um, uh, shouldn't I say more here? Well, <clears throat> um, I think I've already actually told you a lot. This is this is actually quite a, quite a lot, um, and it's already more detailed than is usual, I think, in metaethical expressivism. Um, uh, I think the advantage here is comes from. Uh, wheeling in explicitly the notion of uh, common ground and explicitly enriching the structure of that object. I think maybe if Gibbard had done that in his uh, version of expressivism, it might have been clearer just what exactly he was claiming when he was claiming that um, you can can, with language express states of norm acceptance. Um, So I think you actually do have a Quite a lot of detail, even even with this fairly sketchy, you know, cartoonish picture. Um, but you can we can state the general program more precisely. Uh, and so here's what I think are the main ingredients for Bayesian expressivism. And they're basically two ingredients. One is the thesis I'll call context probabilism. This is just the idea of enriching the common ground of the conversation. So. First idea, use probabilistic or decision theoretic structure to represent uh, conversational common ground. Don't just treat it as a set of propositions or some proxy for a set of propositions, um, like a set of possible worlds. Actually add the kind of structure that you use when you model a creedal state or a uh, utility-laden state. So that I think is really important uh, to just saying clearly what we mean by express we're trying to articulate what speech acts do here by their characteristic effect on the common ground. So, um, you know, we can't have an interesting characteristic effect without enriching the common ground in this kind of way. So that's the first uh, move. Second move is to not just enrich the common ground, but once you've enriched it, obviously you want language that exploits that extra structure, right? So, um, you know, you could add this probabilistic structure to the common ground, but if you don't have language that interacts with it, then you might as well have left it out, right? So if you want to finish your uh, Bayesian expressivism, you need to allow that some fragment of your language, not necessarily all of it, maybe just a small part of it, um, interacts with this aspect of the, of the context of the common ground. And, uh, you know, specifically it's, uh, the idea would be that the sentences of this fragment have a certain kind of characteristic impact on the common ground. Their characteristic impact is to update it, update the common ground as a function of its probabilistic structure. So I'll say more about both of these two things. Um, first, context, probabilism. So there are lots of ways you might add probabilistic or decision theoretic structure to uh, a representation of the common ground. Um, Here's the version I favor. I don't think you have to have this version, but um, for the purposes of making this picture precise, um, uh, here's a way to do it. So the, the, in this version, you can think of as an extension of uh, Stalmacher's model of the common ground as a set of possible worlds, or as a con- what he calls a context set. So on Stalmacher's picture, you now state of presupposition is represented as set of possible worlds it's just the, this is meant to reflect the set of possibilities not yet ruled out for all we've, for all we've said and mutually presuppose in, in context. So um, I want at least that much information in the common ground, a set of possible worlds, but then I also want information about what the possible probabilities are given these open possibilities. So various ways of distributing probability over these open possibilities and the second element of the context uh, of the common ground that I want to recognize is is information about about uh, which 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 probabilities for possibilities are admissible and which aren't. So um, here we kind of come to a slight uh, wrinkle or technical point um, that's maybe worth flagging. Uh, you might think that. So I, what I've basically just said is, well, you start with the context set and then you add probabilities, you add probabilistic structure. You might think, well, why not just have probabilistic structure? Why would you need a distinguished set of possible worlds? Couldn't you just say, look, um, uh, if a possibility is assigned zero probability, then it's ruled out. And if it has greater than zero probability, it's live, right? So you don't need a some extra feature of the model to tell you which possibilities are alive and which aren't. You can just kind of read that off the probabilities. So that's a pr- that's a pretty natural idea, but actually I think it's wrong. Um, I think there's a conceptual difference between uh, something's being possible or lo- live or epistemically possible and it's having non-zero probability. So certainly something actually can have zero probability and yet still be live. Right, that's exactly just a mathematical fact about certain probability spaces. You can easily have events that probably zero of occurring, but still might happen. You know continuous sample spaces are the kind of standard examples, but I don't even think you need infinite-sized, infinitely sized domains t- to come up with these kinds of cases. So this is just sort of flagging a conceptual distinction. It's one thing for a possibility to be live according to conversation, another thing for the possibility to have non-zero. Probability. Of course, if it has non-zero probability, it's live. But the reverse is not the case. Okay, so that's just to say A doesn't reduce to B. We really do need these two parts. You need um, the common ground to tell you which possibilities are open, and and you need the common ground to tell you what the probability, what the admissible ways of apportioning probability are over these possibilities. So um, here's the kind of notion of an information state. I'll need, uh, and this just actually just makes a little technically more precise the kind of informal thing I just said. So I, w- I won't read it. It's on the handout in case you would like to refer back to it. Uh, so you can just think of this as a context set in locker sense if you're familiar with that notion, just set of possible worlds, with a probability measure laid down over it. <coughs> okay, so that's the kind of notion of a probability space I'll use, and then what I want to say is let's model the common ground of a conversation as a set of these things. So as a set of information states. A set of these kinds of probability spaces. And uh, so what I'll do is show you how this can be seen as just a generalization of Lucker's kind of picture. It can do everything Stonlocker's picture does, and more. Um, so... Uh, the idea on this picture, if you model a common ground this way, is that the elimination of possibilities in discourse happens by way of eliminating information states. So whereas Stalknocker thinks of information growth in context as ruling out possibilities, we're really thinking of it as ruling out information states. You can rule out an information state. When you rule out an information state, it's, a, it's, as, it's as a function of its properties. And we've just said it has two distinctive kinds of properties. One kind of property is what possibilities it, it uh, countenances, countenances as open. And then the other is the way it di- distributes probability. So when, when it comes to just ordinary factual presuppositions, stuff that doesn't include any you know, fancy probability language, suppose you just presuppose it's not raining, that's just to rule out information states that allow rain possibilities within their domains. That'll be the picture. And thereby, we just do what StoneLocker's picture does for ordinary, non, ordinary factual, non-Bayesian kind of language. Uh, and that makes the proposal kind of attractively conservative. When we're not dealing with this sort of probabilistically articulated language, maybe you know, probability operators or indicative conditionals or words like doubt and so on, we can just, we just ignore all this probability stuff, right? Here, it looks like I'm making it all complicated. Oh, no, we have to start from scratch with our semantics. No, this is not the case at all. It's a totally conservative extension. You can just forget it when you're not dealing with probabilistic language. Um, and, of course, the, but the point of having this extra structure is to mark an interesting uh, way of uh, presupposing something like it's uh, probably not raining. So we can say to presuppose it's probably not raining is to rule out information states, not as a function of what possibilities they leave open or closed, but as a function of the way they distribute probability. So they'll rule out an information state uh, uh, if it assigns the proposition that it's not raining a low probability. So that's the the concrete version of context probabilism, I think, has a reasonable amount of promise. So one thing I skipped over uh, about this version of context problems, this way of enriching the structure of common ground is, you know, why use a set of information states rather than just one? So you could say um, the version of context probabilism I've sketched is like blunt context probabilism as opposed to sharp context problemism. So, um, you know, if you just had a single information state, then you'd also be adding probabilistic structure to the common ground. Why not just <clears throat> have that? Why Why appeal to sets of them? You know why why, flavor, why favor sets of probability spaces over just a single probability space as a representation of the common ground? So let me just briefly say why I like to do this. First, it avoids ma- massive failures of coordination that would I- inevitably arise if you just had totally precise information states. I mean, one way to think about it is, you know, suppose some possibility is mutually open for all we presuppose. We're talking about, I don't know, rain in Paris, and it, you know, we both regard it as open. We don't know whether it's raining there or it's not. And, you know, that's all we say in conversation. Well, if our, state of pres- our states of presupposition need to be probabilistically precise, then they have to assign that proposition some, some, some real number, right? And, you know, absent some fantastic luck, there are going to be different real numbers that we assign the, that, um, proposition, but, you know, that looks like a problem, or at least it seems to raise a question for modeling the state of presupposition, because presupposition is supposed to be a state that we, uh, you know, you're only supposed to presuppose something if your interlocutor does, right? That's the whole idea of presupposition is this public attitude. Um, um, you're attempting to coordinate on this state. But you know, unless you explicitly talk about every proposition you regard as open, you're going to fail to coordinate on all these probabilities, and so it's going to it's going to it's going to be unclear when you're kind of principally you know you're you're presupposing in a principled way that a probability is thus and so, and when it's just sort of happenstance. So you can avoid that if you have sets of of probability measures. Uh, you don't have to. If nothing is said about the probability of rain in Paris, then the whole interval can be open for all we've said, and therefore uh, information states assigning every which, uh, real number will be within the common ground, you Nope. Know, there to knock out in the future when we learn more. So that's one reason. Second reason is we want to distinguish not presupposing that probably P from presupposing that not probably P. And that's actually hard to do if a state of presupposition is representable as a single probability space. Um... So uh, why is that? Well, what is it to presuppose not probably P if you have um, sharp probabilities? Well, presumably, it's just to associate P with a low enough uh, probability. Um, but you know, it looks like, well, sorry, what I should say is, what is it to fail to presuppose that it's probably raining in Paris if you just have a sharp probability measure? Well, it's going to have to be to assign it some low probability. But then that's just tantamount to presupposing that it's not likely, right? But surely there is a difference between actually uh, presupposing something on this matter and just failing to presuppose something on the matter. Um, surely you can fail to presuppose that it's probably raining in Paris without thereby presupposing that it's not likely to be raining in Paris. So that's just hard to do if you don't have sets of probability measures. Um, this, So some of you might recognize this problem. It looks structurally analogous to a problem in metaethics, often called a negation problem, uh, supposedly afflicting various versions of expressivism. So this would afflict our version of expressivism if we went sharp, but it doesn't if we go blunt. I decided to call it blunt because unsharp sounded somehow disparaging, but then again, blunt maybe also somewhat disparaging. Anyway. All right, so um, uh, so this is the version of context probabilism uh, I uh, recommend. Um, but again, you know just having this just assuming this kind of probabilism about the common ground doesn't get you expressivism. You need some language that exploits the extra structure, and that's where this second part comes in, uh, this thing I'm calling Bayesian context change. We want to allow for sentences that uh, interact with the structure. OK, so um, we can think of this aspect of Bayesian expressivism as a view about the context change potentials of the sentences of the relevant fragment. So a context change potential formally is just a function from a prior common ground to a posterior common ground. <coughs> If you like reasoning about pragmatics using the notion of common ground, the idea of a context change potential is gonna is gonna be pretty natural. Uh, again, it, the the context change potential of a sentence is just its characteristic way of changing it. So again, I say, say say on like a classic Stalnakerian picture, if you have a proposition like it's raining, the characteristic context change potential of that sentence will be this. It'll take a common ground and change it by knocking out the worlds where it's not running, right? It's a function from uh, common grounds to common grounds. So you can think of Bayesian expressivism as incorporating a view about the context change potentials of a certain class of sentences. So first you enrich the structure of the common ground, then you say, look, there 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 are sentences whose characteristic effect on the common ground is to change it in this way that exploits the extra structure. And again, we can think of this as a conservative extension. The particular kind of context change potentials we have in mind for this language of like, what's likely, uh, I can think of, um, if you want, as, as conservatively extending a Stollnocker-like picture. So here's one way of visualizing it. <clears throat> Suppose here uh, we have Blaze and Thomas again in their conversational common ground. So as I just said, on, on a knocker like picture, if you think of um, the common ground as just a set of possible worlds, a subset of logical space, the, s- the space of all possible worlds, then the idea is just, you know, Thomas says it's raining. This, as a matter of its semantics, determines a truth condition, a set of possibilities where it, it is raining. And Thomas is interpreted as proposing to eliminate Eliminate worlds where this proposition is false from the conversational common ground. If Blaze obliges, the common ground will change. It'll shrink, right? So it'll just uh, shorten like that. That's the characteristic context change potential of its reigning on a sort of ordinary factual uh, picture of sentences. Um, So we can allow the same kind of thing, but in a richer space. I'll sketch how we do this with ordinary factual talk so we know how language not including prob- not probabilistic in character works, and then we'll just say how it then works for probabilistic language. <clears throat> so it's the same kind of picture, except instead of logical space, space of possible worlds, we have a space of information states, so as, as we've defined them. The conversational common ground, I said, is a set of infra- information states, so it's just some subset of this big space. And uh, its reigning is just going to pick out a set of information states, those states that leave only rain possibilities open. And again, we'll, uh, the dynamic change to the context, the context change potential of the sentence, is going to be basically the same kind of thing. So again, we just have an indirect way of eliminating possibilities. So again, this is a, this is just sketching the way in which what we have is a pretty conservative extension. Then the added value comes from when we have things like it's probably raining, uh, here, this two is going to determine a set of information states, but it's going to pick out the set of information states as a function of the probability measure of the information state rather than the possible, the possible worlds it leaves open. And again, if Blaze obliges, um, well, what this sentence will do is change the common ground by knocking out some information states depending on how they apportion probability. So... That sort of conservatively extends the Stone-Likarian picture, but it also allows us to say that when, with a sentence like, it's probably raining, that isn't a way of eliminating possibilities. One way of interpreting that is, is isn't a way of describing the world um, in a certain flat-footed sense. You're not characterizing the world as one way or another. You're saying something that imposes a certain kind of constraint on how to distribute probability over the possibilities. And so that you know, it's kind of in the expressivist uh, spirit. So um, uh, one way to one way to think of this, or some terminology, some jargon that might be helpful in thinking about it, is we can say his, Thomas's sentence expresses a probability condition rather than a, a truth condition in the usual sense. You know, the easiest way to understand its characteristic effect on the common ground is by. Th- thinking about this condition on probability spaces, it determines. Condition on probability space is not a truth condition in the usual sense. I take it the usual sense of truth condition is something like a way the world might have been. Um, and that's not the kind of thing Thomas's sentence determines. Okay. So this gets at this idea that a sentence like probably P has an irreducibly probabilistic context change potential. It's changing the context in a way that essentially exploits this extra structure. So then the simple thought is changing or proposing to change the probabilities that are open according to the common ground in this way can be a way of expressing one's credence. Maybe it isn't always a way of expressing one's credence. It isn't always the case that in conversation you're exchanging beliefs. Maybe you're telling stories or something like that. But it's a way of expressing one's credence where the mutually recognized aim of the conversation anyway is that of exchanging uh, beliefs or exchanging knowledge. So, those are what I see as the two main ingredients for Bayesian expressivism. You have a certain enriched conception of the common ground, and then uh, uh, the idea that certain sentences have a characteristic context change potential. Um, All right. So I think if you can motivate these two theses, you'll have a kind of Bayesian, you'll have a Bayesian expressivism. Uh, notice that neither of these theses are explicitly theses in semantics, formal semantics, and uh, I think that's the way it should be. It Seems to me expressivism is not a thesis. It's not a. It's not a kind of formal semantics. Uh, it imposes some constraints on semantics, but itself is it's not a semantic program. All right. So hopefully that makes the view intelligible. How plausible is it? Well, um, uh, this Bayesian expressivist picture imposes constraints on the semantics of probably. You know, the, the context change potential of a sentence is partly a function of its semantics. Maybe, it's, maybe there's more. Something contributed uh, by some pragmatic rules or something. Um, and then there's obviously an important question. Can the constraints be independently motivated? So I'm not suggesting expressivism is somehow totally independent from semantics. But the, direction, the, the connection is indirect. So let me say really, really quickly, I'll just sketch um, way too quickly some empirical motivations for the view just to make it clear that um, uh, they exist. Uh, in fact, I think Bayesian expressivism is a view you can motivate directly from semantic and pragmatic considerations. Uh, I think that's important to stress. The situation is rather different than the situation in meta-ethical expressivism, where sometimes the motivation some theorists have is this kind of metaphysical axe to grind, right? Moral properties are queer or something like that, so we need to um, find a way to uh, excise them from our semantics. So, you know, you you show up in the semantics room with this metaphysical agenda, and, you know, often semanticists find this very puzzling and can't see why they should be uh, moved by these kinds of non-linguistic, seemingly non-linguistic considerations, I mean there's a lot there's a lot one can say about that whole issue but um all all I want to say is that uh as as for this kind of Bayesian expressivism I think you really can motivate it directly from the kinds of considerations that semanticist sort of workaday semanticist or theorist and pragmatics would uh be moved by so hopefully that'll come across in some of these examples so here's an example I I talk about in a paper of, from a, a few years ago the sentence seems like uh, this seems like there's some logical tension between it's not raining and it's probably raining. <laughs> um, you could explain that if you thought about this in terms of probability conditions. They seem to correspond to different constraints on a probability measure. That would be uh, an explanation a Bayesian expressivist could give you. Um, but, you know, you might push back and say, look, um, that's just like it's not raining and I'm pretty confident it's raining. That second sentence is more paradoxical why can't we just say the first one's more paradoxical? It's not really contradictory, it's just kind of looks contradictory. It's something something self-defeating about saying it. But uh but not not strictly a con- contradiction or anything like that. Um that's a natural response, but it, it turns out these conjunctions be- bed in very different ways. So um if you put them under suppose, the conjunction would probably stay bad uh not so the conjunction with uh, something like, I'm pretty confident it's raining. So that looks like indirect evidence that probably just doesn't mean something like, pretty confident. And you could change I'm to you you or, in fact, any group of people you like. The same phenomenon occurs with conditionals. So it sounds fine to say, if it's not raining and I'm pretty confident it's raining, then I'm confident of something false. That's, not only does that sound fine, although it's the kind of thing only a philosopher would say, uh, it's true. Um, whereas just starting a conditional, uh, with, if it's not raining and it's probably raining, it seems like you've already failed. Um, there isn't really a nice way to end that sentence. So hard to understand these data in terms of incompatible truth conditions, but much easier in terms of incompatible probability conditions. So that's one data, or uh, dat- datum, uh, second, more intuitive one, uh, and um, this just concerns belief descriptions. When you say John believes it's probably raining, what is it that you're ascribing to John? Intuitively, it's a first-order rather than a second-order state of mind. It's not like you're saying John thinks that he's confident that it's raining or something like that. Um, it looks like, especially from a Bayesian perspective, you'd want to say, "Look, this is just a way of relating John to the rain outcome." He's related like this. His credence is pretty high in that outcome. That's what what makes the sentence true. It's easy to to model that idea if you think of it's probably raining as determining a probability condition. Less easy um, otherwise. Similarly with John doubts it's raining. From from this kind of Bayesian perspective I'm sketching, you can literally analyze that as John believes it's unlikely that it's raining. (laughs) And again, you wouldn't want John believe it's unlikely that it's raining to be this kind of second-order thing. Surely when you doubt that it's raining, that's just a state that's about the rain, um, not about what your confidence is or something. Um, Another kind of motivation that's probably blindingly obvious comes from considerations about indicative conditionals. Um, Just like you can associate probably P with a condition on probability spaces, a certain the condition that the probability space assigned p high enough probability. Likewise, with indicative conditionals, you can think of them as semantically uh, uh, connected to the relevant conditional probability. So you don't have to find some set of possible worlds for the indicative conditional to express. You can just pick out a space, a set of probability uh, measures, and maybe you're picking out the set in virtue of a certain um, conditional probability holding. and you know you can indeed uh, give a semantics like that, and if you do, you get lots of patterns uh, coming out valid that would be hard to get otherwise. <clears throat> so I won't review these. I'm just reporting that you can do this. Um, you can also capture various invalid patterns, including certain failures of uh, modus tollens. Um, so I thought maybe I'd talk about that, but I think I'm, I'm running a bit behind on uh, time. So. Um, so modus tollens fails. Just so you guys know. Um, all right. Uh, so, um, at, but you know, the, the more flat-footed advantage here is simply that um, the story about indicative conditionals we can tell just lets us go some way in explaining the the in, the intuitive idea that there is some connection between indicative conditionals and conditional probabilities. I mean, no, it's actually unclear. Whether there's a problem for this on the traditional propositional picture, as Daniel Rothschild has made clear in a recent paper, but in any case, we can capture the connection in this kind of expressivist framework. Um, And it isn't just that, you know, Adams had this intuition or Ramsey had this intuition, so we better explain it. There's actually plenty of psychological evidence that there is some connection uh, along these lines, that uh, people's judgments or disposition to accept a conditional does go with uh, their corresponding conditional credence. Okay, so um, that's it for my sketch of some empirical motivations for the view. Um, let me just close with uh, some comments about the force-content distinction in this um, Bayesian expressivist uh, kind of worldview. Okay, so um, so one natural question to ask is, you know, take a sentence like "It's probably raining in Paris." What is the content of the sentence? according to the Bayesian expressivist. I think that's a natural question to want to get clear on. Um, uh, but it's actually not that easy to answer. So um, if you want to talk about the object of assertion for such senses, the best candidate for that role would be probability condition. <clears throat> Why? Well, that's, that reflects what's added in the relevant sense to the common ground. That reflects what you're trying to add to the common ground from our theoretical perspective. So, um, uh, that raises the question, should we therefore take probability conditions to be contents? Should we say that the content of it's probably raining in Paris is given by the set of information states assigning the rain in Paris outcome, say, better than even odds? Um, well, we could use content in this kind of way, but I think it would blur over distinctions we, um, we should like to make. So, um, Here's one way of seeing that. So, compare two belief states, believing it's probably raining in Paris and believing it's not likely to be raining in Paris. You could ask, okay, so considering these two states of mind, same content or not? And I think it's not hard to see a case for either answer to that question. The case for same is this they're states of mind intentionally directed at the same state of affairs, they're states that don't differ in what they're about. Um, They're representationally alike, another way to put it. Um, Insofar as you wanted your notion of content to track purely representational similarities and differences between states, there's some pull to say that they don't differ in content. Um, In a way, I kind of informally motivated the Bayesian uh, idea in this way. Um, But you could also make a case for the different answer. You could say, well, Despite being states of the same type, they're both doxastic states, of course, they correspond to different causal explanatory properties of agents vis-à-vis action. Other things being equal, we'd expect different dispositions to act from agents in these respective states. Um, And of course, one expectation of the notion of content, at least for many theorists, is to track such causal explanatory differences. Um, If the two states differ in respect of what actions uh, they um, uh, predict for the agents in the states, then they, uh, you might think they differ in content. You might just think that's the way you're gonna use the notion of content. Um, so I think the way to respond to this is to say uh, that the force content distinction, as it's usually drawn, is just a bit too coarse for a Bayesian picture I think in some important sense, the above two states have the same force and the same content. I mean, they're both doxastic states, that's totally clear, so it's the same kind of state. And they're both about the same thing. Um, So that just suggests we need another distinction, not that there's some deep problem here. Um, So let's just introduce a further distinction. So alongside maybe what we could call force or attitude type and what I'll call representational content, we can have a notion I'll call structural character. Um, the first two notions, attitude type and representational content, those are supposed to be sort of vaguely familiar. I think those correspond to the more uh, classical notions. Structural character—that's meant to pick out this further feature. It's, a, it's supposed to avert to certain properties the states have in virtue of their particular formal structure. So let me just briefly uh, go through the distinctions with these three examples. So. We could say these two states, you know, given these three states of mind, these two are alike in attitude type, the first two believing states, and they differ in attitude type type from a state of imagination. Um, These two states, this state of believing and the state of imagining, have the same representational content. They're both about the rain outcome. And we can say these two states have the same structural character. They're both states of... Uh, information states that assign the same kind of property to an outcome. Um, So the probability condition associated with an informational state of mind is a property state has in virtue of both its structural character and its representational content. So this notion of a probability condition isn't just corresponding to one or the other of these technical notions. It's really like structural character plus representational content. So... um, if you want to speak more generally about differences between states owing either to structural character or to representational content, I think you could speak generically of informational differences or of informational content. So you could think of probability conditions, you know, you can have another notion of content in addition to representational content, call it informational content, and, you know, the modeling proposal here could be, well, informational contents, those are modelable as you know, sets of probability spaces or conditions or constraints on information states. So... Uh, To give an example, believing that it's likely that it's snowing, that picks out the representational content um, that it's snowing, that picks out the snow outcome. And this this subclause, it's likely that it's snowing, that corresponds to a constraint on information states. We could call that constraint if we like informational content. Um, Okay, so at the most general, informational content is the sort of thing that gets added to the common ground. I think this This notion of information, and I'll just sort of close with this thought, is the sort of notion we find in information theory in a flat-footed way. Information can do more in information theory than just eliminate possibilities. It can also shift the probabilities. The way way you measure information in information theory is partly a function of how the probabilities are distributed. You can have informational differences between two states even if they leave exactly the same possibilities open. And I think that's a perfectly viable, reasonable notion of information Um, and I think there's some use for it in semantics and pragmatics hopefully I've made that plausible so that was the third thing I wanted to do Um, and now I've done these three things so thanks and that's it